Social distancing has been hard on all of us, especially those of us who are doing it solo. But imagine this, living alone in an abandoned town, 20 miles from your nearest neighbor, with no running water, limited internet access, and no one to keep you company except for the ghosts who roam the property. That's exactly what Brent Underwood, the owner of Cerro Gordo, California, has been doing since the start of the pandemic. The Austin resident bought the abandoned 400-acre town in 2018 for $1.4 million. He made his way there nearly three months ago, thinking he would stay for only a few weeks, but he is still quarantining there today. We were lucky to talk with Brent this week and find out what it's like to be living in a ghost town, alone, right now. Here's his story. I guess I'll rewind all the way to the very beginning. We purchased Cerro Gordo on July 13th, 2018. It was it was Friday the 13th, which seemed very fitting for a ghost town. And, you know, I think the progression sense is you, you buy a property like this, one that I never thought would be available, you know, one with such a rich history and stunning natural beauty. It's inland of Los Angeles, right, Brent? Yep, it's about three hours kind of northeast of Los Angeles by Sequoia National Park and Death Valley. And, you know, at first we were just celebrating the purchase. It, it was a little bit of a bidding war. And so I guess listeners of this podcast will understand it a little bit more, but we essentially had to close in all cash in seven days. That was our offer. I didn't have anywhere near that amount of cash. And so I had to wire over $50,000 in earnest money, which was a sizable chunk of the money that I did have. Then I had a week to raise the money or lose that money, I guess. And so it was, a, it was a lot of phone calls, a lot of uh, convincing friends with no paperwork that buying a ghost town with no water was a good idea. And luckily, kind of in the last hour, yeah, we were able to close. And so mm-hmm. our, our goal has always been to turn Cerro Gordo into a destination, into kind of like a lodge type atmosphere where people can come, stay for the weekend, um, you know, experience the history of the town, the stunning natural beauty, as I mentioned before. So for the past year and a half, we've just been trying to do that. It's, it's, it's not an easy task. It's, it's a very remote property. You know, we're probably 30 miles from the closest town and 150 miles from the closest Home Depot or something. About two months ago, when the coronavirus uh, was getting pretty bad and a lot of the state lockdowns were happening, we have a caretaker on the property. There's a guy named Robert who has lived on the property for over 21 years. And his main role is kind of a uh, caretaker, sheriff, guardian. He makes sure nobody comes up and loots the property. The property is pretty well established on the kind of California ghost town tours. And so we get a lot of people that come up and want to poke around. Most of them in, in goodwill. Some of them want to come and take relics back home. And so... Robert is up there to prevent that. If you kind of come to Cerro Gordo after dark, you'll meet Robert on his four-wheeler with his gun, and he'll ask you what you're doing there. So Robert lives alone for the past 21 years. Um, He's a miner by trade. So originally he read about Cerro Gordo in a mining magazine. He was basically obsessed with the place. There's there's rumors that there's $500 million worth of silver still in the mountain. That's the amount of silver that they pulled out of the mountain back in the early 1900s. Um, and so Robert is, still believes, you know, he thinks that this vein is out there, that we're going to find it. And so he has been living there for off and on for 20 years. Um, but his wife lives a couple hundred miles away. And so when <laughs> the coronavirus kind hit, of situation. 
Yeah, yeah that's I a kinda, long distance relationship. <laughs> I kind of glossed over that quickly because I don't think it's any of my business, but there's certainly, I'm sure, uh, more stories there about how to manage a relationship for 20 years when you're 200 miles apart. But, right. uh, Not I exactly guess. our podcast, but I'm, I'm yeah. interested nonetheless. Yeah. I'm intrigued yeah, just on a personal I'll, level. <laughs> I'll leave that story to Robert, I guess, in a different day. But uh, when all of the crisis hit, he wanted to go be to go be home with his wife. And so I was in Austin. I decided to pack up my truck, um, drive out to Cerro Gordo to, to kind of fill in as caretaker. And I thought it would be a week, two weeks, maybe three weeks uh, up there. And uh, Mother Nature kind of had other other plans, I suppose. The, the night I drove up, I drove into a blizzard, which coming from Austin is not something that I was prepared for. Uh, by any means mentally you know like uh, equipment wise anything and so my, mm-hmm. my truck stopped a couple hundred yards before the town I walked the rest of the way um, and then it just snowed for weeks so you got snowed in you were you came up expecting to spend you know two maybe three weeks chops and I assume you came with that many provisions you've now been there two, three months. How, how are you doing it? How are you eating? How are you like, what are you doing to kind of survive? Yeah, I I came up here with probably two weeks worth of supplies, which I thought was a lot, you know, and my truck pretty full. And those pretty quickly went by the wayside. But luckily, Robert is a bit more uh, experienced on the mountain life than myself. And so he has squirreled away food, canned goods, and non-perishables in pretty much every building up here. And so I've just been going kind of building by building and raiding Robert's stash, uh, knowing that I'm going to replace a lot of this. What have you been, have you been eating just like beans, corn? Yeah, just a lot of boring stuff like canned beans, spaghetti. uh, Right. And I, I think I read somewhere that said you were boiling snow for water. How are you doing with water at this point? I'm doing pretty good. So Cerro Gordo, water's been like the issue here for the longest time for almost a hundred years, Cerro Gordo has been without water. And I knew that going mm-hmm. into it, I kind of understood what the challenges with having a property without running water would be. But I think, uh, this has certainly been a crash course on water conservation. There's a lot of bottled water up here. Uh, Robert mm-hmm. with, again, made a pretty good stash pretty much everywhere. And so mm-hmm. I, I've just been conserving how I can. And again, just kind of raiding Robert's stash in the interim. So is there still snow there? Or I guess my question is, why are you still there? Can you get out and or are you choosing to stay there right now during COVID? Yeah, so the majority of the snow is melted. There's still some patches. It's not impassable anymore. So if I needed to, I could get out with my truck. I think at this point, there's a couple of things going on. One, uh, Robert still wants to be home, rightfully so, with his wife. And so I can't leave the town unguarded. Uh, It's just a spot where while a lot of people don't come up here, enough people come up here that having a property that I sank the majority of my life savings into sit vacant for potential people to, you know, loot or, you know, there's no water up here. A fire could happen and houses could burn down or things like that. So mm-hmm. it's mainly just like kind of a uh, guarding role. But also, again, back going back to the point that this is a property that I sank a lot of my savings into, I there's projects that need to be done that if the world was in a normal state, we could have contractors do, but that's just not the reality of it. And so I've just been um, 
doing what I can. You know, I've been fixing up the buildings in preparation for, you know, the day that people can travel again. Hopefully we're in a better place. How far have you gotten? You said there are 20 buildings in the town. Um, Tell us a little bit about the progress you've made on the renovations. When you think of renovation projects, sometimes just a bathroom alone can be overwhelming. So when you think of 22 buildings that were all built 150 years ago, it's almost, uh, you can't even comprehend how big it is. And so for me, the way I've been managing it is just focusing on two or three of the buildings. And so I've been focusing on two buildings. One's called the Belshaw House. And it was a house that was originally built by a guy named Mortimer Belshaw, who was one of the founders of the town. And then right next to it, there's a house called the Gordon House. And that was by a guy named L.D. Gordon, who built that house for uh, his family when he when he owned the town. You know, the interesting thing about Cerro Gordo is there's the overarching history of the town. You know, it, it was once upon a time, the largest producer of silver in California, but also like each of the individual buildings has its own kind of micro history. Like the Gordon House has a history that's completely unique to the Belshaw House. And so I think there's like, that's interesting. That's a thing that doesn't happen on a lot of different properties. And so I've just been trying to, yeah, just go building by building. Okay, Eric's going to roll his eyes at me so he can tune out right now. But from what I understand, you are not exactly alone in this ghost town. So do you want to talk a little bit about what you think is going on there? Yeah, I mean, I guess I'll start with the fact that I was firmly in the Eric camp. If he's a non-believer, I was firmly like, listen, I ghosts are not a thing. That sounds ridiculous. And even at a place like Cerro Gordo, it's a place with a very rich paranormal history. You know, there's stories of infamous ghosts that are in certain buildings that do certain things to certain people. And it all sounded ridiculous <laughs> to me when we bought it. And I pretty much dismissed it. Um, but... <laughs> As uh, one would imagine, being up here for a couple months, I've been able to experience a lot more evenings here. And I would say I have moved from firm non-believer to let's just figure out a way to coexist with the ghost or paranormal or whatever you want to describe them as. Enough incidents have happened that I can't explain that I... I would say I'm a believer now. I'm pretty firmly in the camp of I know that they're here. I don't think... I still don't believe that there's like evil spirits. I don't think there's any evil kind of coming out of it. I don't think they're out to like get me, but I do think that there's a, a curiosity maybe on both ends. And so they're kind of encroaching upon where I stay. And when I try to kind of go into the buildings that I know that they are most likely in, there's some pushback there. Um, I've been handling <laughs> it personally just by avoiding the buildings that I know are haunted. And then hopefully that means that they will respect my space as well. That doesn't always happen. There's been some nights where we've had a little bit of crossover, but um, I think so far (laughs) I'm trying to find a way to manage it and keep myself uh, from going nuts in the process. I love it. I freaking love it. I'm very into this um, stuff as Natalie and Eric know. So what have you experienced then while you've been there? The, The kind of like the progression is, I think the first night that I started questioning things is, there's a peak overlooking Death Valley that I like to go to every night for sunset. And I was walking up towards that peak one night, and I noticed that in the bunkhouse, this building that's built in 1900, that the light was on in the living room, which is kind of the front left room of the building. And when I walked by, the curtain opened and closed. And like I know it opened and closed. I know this sounds ridiculous as you say it out loud, but I was like, all right, I'm going to go in there and figure out what's going on. And so I went in. Um, I explained it as a draft. I was like, no big deal, draft, whatever. Uh, I turned off the light, I went outside, and I put a padlock on the door. 
it's a padlock that I only have a lock to, you know, nobody else is up in this town. As we mentioned, we're very remote. People don't just happen to stop by this town. And so I forgot about it. But then the next night as I was going back, I was walking along the same path to the sunset spot and the light in the living room was back on. My heart dropped a little bit. You just don't want to see stuff like that, particularly when you're by yourself. It's not something that inspires confidence in you know, your surroundings. And so I, I went back in, I unlocked the door, the light switch was back up as if it was on. So it can be just described as like faulty electric, which I tried to jump to initially. Um, and as I was in there, there's just this overwhelming sense that I shouldn't be in there. I know people may have felt that before where like you just feel a little bit spooked and you kind of just want to get out of there. But to me, it was like I needed to run out of the building and just like get out of there as quick as I could. Um, I did. I locked it again. And then a couple of nights later, I was back in the Dalshaw house, the house that I stay in. And I live, I, I stay in the room. It's a pretty big room with a big closet and a big bookshelf right outside. And maybe three or four in the morning, a book just kind of fell off the shelf. Almost out of like a movie mm. or something, and and it's not. There's no draft in this house. I don't have cats up here. I don't have dogs. There's no giant rats that are pushing books around. And so <laughs> I jumped up, startled. My mind started connecting all these stories that I had heard in the past. And one of the most famous stories about the Belshaw house is that way back in the day, Belshaw had two children, and they were playing hide and seek, and they locked themselves in a the trunk. This is before trunks had kind of like escape hatches. And they died in this trunk in the closet. And since they stay in the room, and this happens to be the room that I stay in. And the story was brought up to me by, there's a TV show called Ghost Adventures that I, you know, I'd never watched in my life, but apparently they do these paranormal investigations. And they came to Cerro Gordo. And without knowing any of this background, they zeroed in on the room that I stay in as the most haunted and that there's two child ghosts in it. And these are things that oh, I pushed, yes, that I pushed out of my mind the entirety of the time being there until it's three o'clock in the morning, you're sitting up in your bed, sweating, wondering what that was. And then you start remembering, oh yeah, the ghost adventure said there's ghosts in this room. And so it was a, a bit of a, yeah, it's, it's, it's been interesting to say the very least. But it sounds like there's nowhere you can go where there hasn't been something that's happened, supposedly. Yeah, there, there's a pretty well-known ghost in the saloon called named Alphonse Benoit. And he's a guy that there's newspaper articles about it where he was murdered in the card room here and there's still the bullet hole in the wall and the blood stain on the floor. And lots of guests independently have said that they see this guy that looks like the guy from the zigzag tobacco thing. Independently, they all say the same similar type of image appears in the kitchen of the saloon. And just knowing that, like how I handle it is I'm just not going in the saloon, particularly at night. Like no way. And you've kind of alluded to this already, Brent, but how are you spending your days? What are you doing? Because obviously you have internet and you're able to talk with us. But beyond that, what what do you do when you're living in a ghost town alone for months? I'm trying to spend a little bit less time on the internet, I think, uh, and enjoy the nature. But more practically, um, I'm doing a lot of hiking. You know, I'm, I'm spending the time exploring the 300 or 400 acres that we have, uh, learning about the animal prints, like I said. Um, I brought a camera up here. I've never really taken photos before. So I've gotten into trying to take night photography, like photos of the stars. It's, it's, it's beautiful up here at night. The stars are so bright that it illuminates the whole town. So it's a, it's a great setting to, to learn, I guess. So I've just been spending the time. Yeah. Like I do my day to day work that I need to do 
hopefully by two or three, and then maybe get a little into nature a little bit. And then finally, uh, just work on renovations for the rest of the day. So how long do you plan on staying? Or is it, it sounds like it's kind of TBD until your uh, caretaker, Robert, is ready to come back. Yeah, it's, it's a little bit TBD. Uh, Robert's, Robert's a little older, you know, he's like 70 or so. And he, he's, you know, he's just getting some health things taken care of. And so I'm not going to put any pressure on anybody to get up here. And so I'm loving up here just to like be fully clear. I, I love being up here. It's, it's enjoyable. Did you ever consider bringing a pet up or anything? Yeah, I, I thought about it. There's a couple of things that, so there's, there's coyotes up here. And no. so if I had a dog, I would have to worry about the dog getting into it with the coyotes or maybe a bobcat or something. Um, and then I have a, <laughs> this sounds a little ridiculous, but I have a pet goat in Austin named Aww. Myrtle. It's a, this, this mini goat and he wears a gold chain. He's really cool. What? And so I was going to bring yeah, <laughs> this turtle is a whole other celebrity. Turtle got kidnapped back in the day. It was a whole <gasps> turtle. turtle. And he, uh, he was going to come and spend some time with me, but, the, the logistics of driving turtle across the country were, uh, I wasn't yeah. 100% of how to do that. And so luckily my, my friend Ryan has a, a little ranch outside of Austin. So turtle is residing on Ryan's ranch at the moment, but hopefully one day he can come and hang out up here. Cause I, I think, I think he'd like the space. That's awesome. How are, okay. So here's my question. What has been the hardest part of quarantining alone in a ghost town? Um, a lot. I think, I think being separated from friends and family has been difficult. I try to combat that in my head by remembering that most people aren't able to hang out with their friends as much right now. And so it, it eases that concern a little bit, but there's the practical hardships of no running water, uh, limited food supply and things of that nature. But I mean, I signed up for that, you know, I, I, I knew that going into it and I knew that coming out here. So it's hard to, uh, put that in the difficult category. But other than that, yeah, generally I've, I've really tried to see the positive of being out here during this time of just getting to know the property better uh, and hopefully moving the, like I said, moving the ball forward a little bit. Well, it's awesome. We'll be interested to hear how long you end up staying and following your journey on, uh, on YouTube and Instagram. Well, I appreciate that. And have a great rest of your stay at Sarah Gordo. <laughs> Hope everything goes smoothly. Thank awesome. you. Thank you for having me on and taking the time and uh, talk to you guys soon. Thank yeah. you. Thanks.